sermon. Um, uh, this is going to be a really interesting one, I think. Uh, um, let me just show you something. Where we are is, there's, there's a nice Thanksgiving tie-in, but it really is our series Empowered. And Empowered is simply this, living life like Jesus did. That's what it is, right? The book of Luke is what Jesus did, and one of the main things that he did in his life was raise up disciples to do what he did. And so when we're talking about empowered, we're not just talking about praying for somebody for miracles or healings or, or you know, doing some showy stuff. What we're talking about is the way of life that Jesus intended us to live. And, and I'm going to... I really wrestled with how to share this because I want to I want to communicate my incredibly deep respect for a church that I was just at these last few days, and it's because they've 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 come up with a way of doing an initial sort of discipleship experience that is very experiential rather than going to a class and listening to somebody talk and maybe you discuss. There's, there's, they've developed a way of doing it that, oddly enough, comes from Africa. Then when they were doing missions in Africa, they said, boy, you know, they're getting a lot more out of their discipleship than we are. What are they doing? How are they doing it? How can we bring that back? And this is a very large, very well-known church. I don't want to use the name because of what I'm about to say. Uh, and I really like the church. Have I made that clear? I really like the church. I really like the discipleship that they're doing. We're going to be doing it. I'm, the staff is going to start going through it here shortly. And then we're going to be introducing it again as a little 10-week thing that just sort of jumpstarts you in what it really is to be a Christian. Because here's what I found, even when I was at the church. And, and again, okay, help me, Lord. This is, these are people that love Jesus. And many of them that were there teaching, they, they'd known Jesus for 20, 30 years. And then they ran into this rooted thing. It was experiential. And it was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole layer of Christianity that I knew nothing about that is suddenly open to me, that I'm suddenly experiencing. And we're not talking praying for people to have a miracle. We're not healing we're just talking about the fact that God speaks to you. Now, this is a very large, very good church, according to our standards. And yet, people were blown away that God actually does talk to you. And that he really will move through you in anointed ways to help people. And that there's this, there's this thing, the Holy Spirit, that does things in your life that are incredible. And, and I have to say... You know, I travel enough, and I see other churches and everything else, but I just have to say I was just struck. And I was going, what are we doing? That you could be a Christian for 20 or 30 years and not know this stuff. What are we doing? What the heck? I mean, I don't even know why people would do that other thing. It's what good idea. I don't, do you see what I'm saying? Is this... I'm looking at it, and I'm just going, my gosh, this is huge numbers of people who are just discovering the most foundational things in my mind of what it is to be a Christian. And I really don't understand why a person would be a Christian if it weren't for those things, other than it might be a nice club, and it, you know, it might clean you up a little bit. But it isn't an encounter with God. 
I mean, when we do empowered, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done and even greater works. And when I look at that, here's what I want to say. If we grade on the curve, Lake Sam grades out pretty good, right? Relative to, I don't want to ever compare us with other churches. I, I think that's a sinful thing in a, in a very real way. But you get what I'm saying. And I think as a, as a Christian, I've seen guy raised from the dead. I've seen people healed. I've seen all kinds of stuff happen. I've, and, you know, God's used me, and it's been awesome. But, but that's not true in my life. That's not true in hardly anybody's life. If you hear about it, you hear about it, some stories of somebody else. And, and what I'm thinking to myself is, is, Jesus, this is John 14. This is right before he leaves. This is his last discourse, they call it, which is to say the last thing that he said to us, the stuff he wanted ringing in our ears. And he didn't say like, well, you know, if you're a really good Christian and if you do things and blah, 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 you know, then you'll do more. He, he said it like everybody should be doing more. Like that was normal. And I want to say, I think what Christ meant to be normal is way beyond where we are. Way beyond. I look at that and I say, okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to pray more? You know what I mean? I mean, I pray an hour a day. Is it supposed to be three hours? Maybe I shouldn't be walking. Maybe I should be on my knees. I know. I'm not holy enough. You guys know me well enough to know I am not holy enough. Okay? How could God move, right, through this? Okay? I am not holy enough. I, maybe it's just discipline. Maybe it's, I know what it is. It, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's that I didn't study my scriptures hard enough, and I don't understand the series of events that need to happen. You know, prayer leads into this, leads into this, leads into this. And I, didn't, I don't get the steps right. And so when I pray for somebody, like my brother, and he doesn't get healed, see, if I'd have just known the steps right, if I'd have just done them right, right? Okay, you know the cranes are back, okay? This is downtown Bellevue. This is actually when they were building Bellevue Towers. But the cranes are back downtown. They're not back like they were, but they're back, right? But, but I, I, I have this metaphor in my mind of what it takes to run a crane. This is a very dangerous job. This is on top of the World Trade Center, the new one. So check that out. Look at the, the Empire State Building's over there in the horizon, and you see how much lower it is? I mean, does that give you some fear? And so is that what it's like? Is, is moving in the things of God like operating a, a, a high-towered crane? Is it like really scary and it's really up there? It's really up there with things of God and it's way up there and it's really scary and you know normal people don't actually go up there because it's too scary and only some people go up there and they're the ones that do these things that Jesus was talking about and the rest of us we hang around down on the streets. Is, is that what it's like? In, in fact, you know, is it, here, here's a crane manual or training courses. And you can imagine how badly you'd want to be trained on how exactly to run a crane if you, because if you do something wrong, it's going to go very poorly for you. In fact, in downtown Bellevue, it did go very poorly for somebody. I don't, I, was it the crane operator that was killed in that one? Was it? I can't remember. What's, what's that? There was a resident too. 
But, but you, know, you, you know, is that how we think about these things of healing? Do you feel, when you think about praying for somebody that needs healing, do you feel like, I can't go up there, it's so high, and if I make a mistake, it's all going to fall and kill somebody? Is that what we feel like? Is that somewhat in the... Is that somewhat in our minds as to why we don't just feel relaxed about this? Why we don't feel like this is normal and every day? And I don't mean common in the sense of, you know, common, you know, like nothing. Because it's extraordinary when God moves. But I mean normal. The normal Christian walk. What if the normal Christian walk is the simplest thing? What if all that stuff about manuals and rules and regs, what if all that thought about how long you have to pray, how holy you have to be, how much you have to understand, what if all that stuff is not only false, but dangerously so? What if it's taking you out of where it is that God wants you to be, which is incredibly comfortable and easy for anybody to do. What if we got our religion so wrapped around our axle that it's stopping us? What do you think? Let's take a look at this. There's an incredible passage that we're going to be hitting. Who's there? Oh, Greg Thatcher. Greg, thank you for the word that you gave me. Just earlier, I, I wish I had a recording of it, to be frank. It, I really appreciated it. Thank you for stepping out and doing that. By the way, that's something that should be being done here, not just coming up and grabbing the microphone. But if you see somebody and you have a word, go and give it to them. Yeah. Whenever you do, do this. Give it to them. Don't they say, thus saith the Lord. And if they don't receive it, then they're somehow so horrible sinners. Say, you know what? I think the Lord is saying something. Here's what I think he's saying. And then you can ask him. You don't have but ask him. Does it bear witness with you? Right? And if it didn't, hey, you're trying. Right? People appreciate the fact that you're trying. Right? So can we, right, get it normal, get it real? Go ahead, Greg. Father, we, uh, we come with grateful hearts this morning, not just because it's Thanksgiving coming up, but because we see the scope of what you've done. And, Lord, our hearts respond and say thank you. We are grateful, Father. Lord, I'm reminded of, the, of uh, a phrase of root downward and fruit upward. And God, we're attached at both ends to you. Father, I pray that we would be attached to you. You are the vine, Lord. We're the branches. You're the vine. We draw our life from you. God, would you bless my friends at New Life uh, in Renton, and would you open the doors of their hearts this morning to hear you? Lord, we, we lift up our church. We lift up Kurt. And we ask in Jesus' name that we would continue to see you, to grow, and to say yes to you in Jesus' name. Thank Amen. you, Jesus. Do you hear that fatherly sort of spirit? That's why it's become a tradition at Lake Sam that Greg preaches on Thanksgiving. Because I'm gone with family. It's the one we can go. Christmas we can't. And so we go on Thanksgiving, and, uh, and Greg comes in and he fathers. You know, he just brings a peaceful word to your friends and neighbors and family and so on that's in town. It really is awesome. Thank you. I can't wait for, to hear it. So remember what, we, what we're doing in Luke. Remember the journey that we're on. In the first, 
eight, nine chapters. It was watch Jesus, college level, watch and learn. Now we're significantly into the master's level where it's go and do. You do it, and then you'll learn from doing it. But right in the middle of Jesus sending the disciples out, we hit this couple of chapters that is frankly, whoa, 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 was you, 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 whoa, whoa, everybody. And he just, it just it literally, literally goes on and on and on. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You're going to see that, some of it today. Think about that. The disciples have been being sent out. They're starting to see what real God is, what real Christianity is. And right at the time when they're really learning what it really is, Jesus comes and says this. Don't become like these people. These religious people, watch out. Don't get sucked into that vortex. I always say if Satan cannot keep you in the ditch of inactivity in God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, if he can't keep you in that ditch, then he'll pop you over to another ditch, which has to do with religiousness and hyper-spirituality. And so what happens is he's trying to say to them, don't become like these people. Now, we're going to read the entire section so that you can get a feel for whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? But then we're going to come back, and it's a longer passage, but let me just assure you, it's a very simple truth that comes out of it. Really easy to get to, and we're just going to skip on the top of it, and you'll see it real clear by the time we're done, and it won't take that long. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in, took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. Inside you're filthy, full of greed, wickedness. Nice to have you there, Jesus. <laughs> Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you'll be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? That's kind of like enough, right? But then he goes on, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? You're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you're like hidden graves in a field and people walk over them without knowing the corruption, the death, the decay that they're stepping on, the uncleanness, right, that they're stepping on. Teacher said, an expert in religious law, you've insulted us too in what you just said. <laughs> this is great. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you've insulted us too. Good that you got it. <laughs> <laughs> nice catch, guys. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow awaits you, experts in the religious laws? You crush people with unbearable religious demands. You never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you? You build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. Uh, I, I, 
but in fact, go to verse 28, but in fact you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder. Wow. This is before lunch. You'll be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel, Cain and Abel, to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in the religious laws, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile, tried to provoke him with many questions, and they wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Whew. Right? Okay, like I say, we're just going to kind of skip a stone across the surface here because it's so simple what's actually being said here. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see done to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Who started it? Was it the Pharisee that started the woes? Or was it Jesus? Now, you would think, it, it kind of seems like it's Jesus on first blush, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you know, Jesus didn't wash his hands. Heck, I mean, you know, you go into somebody's home, wash your hands. Right? Before you eat. Okay? Just be nice. You know, you got to handle the bread together. What the heck? Right? So, I mean, just, just wash your hands. What was, what's the big deal here? Right? But understand, see, why was Jesus supposed to wash his hands? It's biblical. It's biblical. All kinds of stuff about washing your hands in the Bible. Actually... What's in the Bible is five books about how to approach God. The first five books, called the Pentateuch. And in those five books, four of them are really about a lot of rules and regs. 90% of which, if not 95, are for priests who are coming into his presence. And God has them washing just their hands with their feet and their clothes and their hair. And the, 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 he has them doing all kinds of things. Because here's what he's trying to communicate to them. There is such a gulf between you and I you, that you have no idea about. You do not understand holiness. You do not have the first clue about holiness. And I'm trying to give, I'm giving you four books of rules and regs. So that somehow it will get into your head that there's a huge problem with the sin that you are relative to the holiness that I am. That's what he's trying to communicate. So he does it through all these regulations and all these things. But interestingly, when you contrast all the rules and regs for the priests to the ones for the people, you come up with a really interesting insight. You do realize that all other religions in the world, here's what they say, there's a great gulf between you and God, however you want to conceive them, personal, impersonal, karma, whatever. There's a huge gulf between you and this other thing. And you have to do a whole bunch of things in order to get there. The Quran is filled with instruction, Ramadans, fasts, etc., what you, jihads, what you have to do 
to get to him. But here's what's being communicated in the Bible. The priest, do you understand the distance between you and God? Great. But you know what I'm laying on you people, the, the, the normal folks? Ten Commandments. There's a few other things. You know, but they're not even really regs. They're more like if you get a skin disease or something, then do this. So that's not regs for, you see what I mean? That's just health stuff. But as far as actually commanding us to do anything, compared to the thousands that are given for the priests, there's 10. What, what is that supposed to be communicating to us? Think about it for a second. There is a huge problem. But he's not laying on you the burden to make up the distance. You see it? It's in the contrast of 10 versus thousands that what he's communicating is there's something else going on here than the normal religious, which is you've got to do a bunch of stuff in order to get right. See it? Now we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at this in more detail, but I just want to show you this hand washing thing, because here's an here's an actual quote right out of a, a, a encyclopedia for Jewish living, okay? And and watch, look, where did hand washing come from? That it was a Jewish custom. Remember how it said it was a Jewish custom to do this? You see what's being said? It wasn't actually law. It wasn't actually Bible. It wasn't actually what God said. Let me let me just. I'm going to do something real quick. You do understand that in the Jewish mentality, here's what they did. They said, put these Ten Commandments out here, right? And if, boy, if we violate those, it's going to be really bad for us. Not understanding the grace that there is in ten versus a thousand. But, uh, but you know, but we're never, going to, we're never going to break those. And here's how we're not going to break those. God put ten out there. We're going to make a couple of thousand. And literally they call it building the fence inside of the fence. Because what we're going to do is we'll have thousands of rules and regs, and then you'll keep most of those. But the point is, is when you keep those, then you won't even get close to offending those. But you know how it worked in the garden. And you know how it works in our human nature. When, when you find out that you violated a law that wasn't actually God, it was just religion, and then there's no consequence, then when you come up to the one that is God, well, you think there's not going to be a consequence. See? So all your laws didn't help me. They burdened me. And they hurt me. Because I couldn't live up to them. And now I felt like a failure. And when I did get to them, whatever. See it? Now, this is in a similar vein, but a slightly different way, which this same religious spirit manifests, because watch this one where, where hand washing comes from. Watch where it comes from. It's a good, it's a good religious impulse. Watch. After the destruction of the temple, this would be hundreds of years before Christ. It's the, first, it's the destruction of Solomon's temple that they're talking about. However, and then when they're exiled, uh, how, uh, however, there was a change in the focus of hand washing. Look, now listen to this. Without the ritual objects and processes of the sacrifices having to do with the temple, without sacrifices, the priests were no longer able to wash their hands. They didn't have the altars. They didn't have the basin. They didn't have the stuff that they needed. So the rabbis not wanting the hand-washing ritual importance to be forgotten at the time of the rebuilding of the third temple, the one that was around when Christ was there, moved the sanctity of the temple sacrifice 
to the dining room table, which became essentially the altar. The, eating the meat and all the sacrifices it. With this change, the rabbis committed, now listen to this, countless pages, in fact, an entire uh, 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 tractate, uh, an entire section of laws. There's an entire, when you go to how to live according to the Talmud, according to the laws that the Jewish rabbis put together, there's an entire section that has to do with hand washing. It's not just wash your hands. It's called the uh, Yadim, uh, Yadim, hands. This tractate discusses the ritual of hand washing, how it's practiced. Now listen, what water's clean, considered clean, etc. So think about it, see? If you're really going to wash your hands well, well now you've got to be careful where the water comes from. And then you've got to be careful about this, and then you've got to be careful. And, and all of a sudden you've got page after page, you've got an entire set about how to wash your hands. You see it? Burdening, burdening, burdening. I'm going to do something right now. Some of you have seen this before. I'm going to move fairly quick. Oh, let me just do something here. The water's considered clean and so forth. Now, here's what Jesus is saying is, when he doesn't wash his hands, did he provoke? It's arguable. Did he know his host was going to be offended by the fact that he didn't do this Jewish custom? See? It's arguable. I mean, probably likely. And that he was trying to make was, look what he says elsewhere about this very thing. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. The words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil things. It's not coming from the outside in. It's coming from the inside out. They come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, lying, slander. This is what defiles you. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile you. You see what they did? They made all these rules about the hand washing because of the priests, and they put it on the people, and now the people were thinking that what was clean hands in a certain external fashion, and when they were focusing on the external, they completely missed the point. Having a clean heart. What God was trying to communicate was being clean in your heart, in your life, in your thought, actions. See it? Now, like I said, I'm going to show you something, and this is, I can't go through it. It's a whole sermon all by itself, so don't try and read every word on here. I just want to show it to you the way that I've shown it before so that it becomes something that people remember over time. But here's the deal. There's a bunch of different, we start in the garden with God, right? And it says fellowship and love, but it's not forced, it's free will. We choose our own way. Okay, so we start in communion, relationship with God. But he gives us a choice. We make the choice, and the whole rest of the Bible is about what? Returning back to what we lost when we made that choice. So watch. In the first part of the Old Testament, you see how it's going across? You've got the world, and then Abraham, and the law, and then judges, and kings, and prophets. I'm not going into them like I said, but here's what I want you to understand. Here's what God's doing. You think you can get back to me. Fine, give it a shot. Your religion, make up your thought, do, try it this way, try it that way, try it any way you want to try it, you're not going to get back to me. See it? And they never do. In fact, they not only not get back to him, but by trying in their own strength, by trying in their religious way, they get so far from him that it becomes that God says, I have to take you out of the land 
that I've given to you. They have to exile you. And so there's the exile. But then what happens after the exile? They come back into the land, and God starts redeeming all of these attempts that we made. He starts showing us how to actually do those right. Not the way we thought, but some way entirely differently. And so he walks it across. He redeems the prophets. He redeems the pseudo-king. He's moving it this way. He's saying, this stuff doesn't work. And I'm showing you that it doesn't work. And I'm trying to point you to what does work. And look at the one right here. Law. You see it on top and on bottom? When they returned from the exile, this is where the Jewish people stopped. The reason that we went into exile is because we crossed that fence. God got mad at us, wrapped our knuckles, sent us away for a while. And now we know better. We're out again. Because that's what God wants, because that's who he is. He's an he's a accountant with green shades and a nice thing to wrap your knuckles with. See it? And this is exactly where they get stuck. They get stuck in the legalism. Now, what does God do? He's going. Watch. Remember Abraham? That was, that was up there, and that was about establishing relationship. Well, here comes Jesus. Jesus establishes relationship again. Just as God came to Abraham, Jesus comes to us. So he's reestablishing relationship. But guess what? Jesus is not the end. He himself said, don't look at me as the end of it. I'm pointing you to something else. And one of the things that he pointed us to was the Holy Spirit. Inside of us now. With us. See what I mean? We're not alone anymore. Like we were in the upper quadrant. We have the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper. Yes, all the time. But even that is not the point. What's the point? The garden. Just being with you. Loving you. One with God. Infinitely greater intimacy than the garden. You see it? He's redeemed it and brought you what he started in the beginning. And the thing that he wants you to hear is you can't do it. That doesn't mean that you don't try. It just means don't get sucked into any thought that you can succeed. It means let him lead you. It means know who he is. Now, now, now keep this mind and keep this thought in mind. What Jesus was doing was, is he's saying on all these woes, here's what he's doing. You guys are stuck at the law. That's not where I want you. I want to take you much better places. So then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside. Give gifts to the poor. Clean yourself up. Get your heart right. And then he goes like this. What sorrow awaits you? You're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not. Like, like, here's the whole point of this message. The entire point of the message is right here. Are you, are you paying really close attention? Pay really close. Here's the whole point of this entire passage. You should tithe. That's a joke. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's not the point. It is interesting. People say that Jesus never said to tithe. It's just not true. He said it this way in several different ways. He, you know, but this, I just meant that as a joke. Here's the point of the whole thing. The whole point here is justice and the love of God. You see what he's doing? 
Do you see how he's calling out the religious impulse? And he's trying to replace it with just love? Doing right? In fact, isn't this exactly how he says it when he says in Malachi, this is in a point of time in which things are going badly. The people are distanced from him and so on. Look, what can we, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring in burnt offerings? Should we bow before the Most High God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Is this what God wants from us? The God who created the whole universe, does he like a couple of sheep and a little bit of oil? Is that the point? Right? We would think of it as abundance to him. What is it? It's nothing. Literally less than nothing. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Is that what it's going to take? Is that the religious impulse? I did something wrong. I now have to pay for it. Whatever it was, an eye for an eye, i got to poke my eye out. Is that it? Is this our relationship with God? No, oh, people the Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you. Listen to, the, listen to the wording. What he requires of you. Does that sound like Ten Commandments coming? And yet, what does he say? To do what is right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Do what is right, love mercy, walk humbly. Is that a little easier than the thousands of regs? Making sure that the water came from the right place in your hands? You see how simple this is? You see what he's teaching his disciples? He's really laying it out for them. You want to understand what true God is? Watch what they're doing and look what I'm doing. See it? And then I love it. Woe to you who always the Pharisees. You love to sit in the seats of honor at the synagogues, receive respectful greetings, walk in the marketplace. What sorrows await you? Your hidden graves in a field. You are, it is unclean to touch death. And what he's saying is, you guys are death. When somebody touches you as a priest, they're defiled. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Wow. And then I love that the teacher said the next, but you've insulted us. Here's why this is so important. If you were to take the Pharisees, the first part of it, and you were to say, who are they like in today's world? It would be like me. I'd be like a Pharisee. Hopefully I'm not a Pharisee, but I'd be like one. A, a pastor. They're people that are working with people to try and get this thing with Christ right. And they're, they're doing all kinds of stuff. Interestingly, we always think of the Pharisees as the people who are really strict about all these rules and regs. Actually, the Pharisees were fairly decent pastors. And... They, they had all these rules and regs that the religious scholars came up with. But they realized that people just couldn't live that way. And the Pharisees were actually, we think of them as being very legalistic. And in truth, what they were was they were just trying to figure out how to get all those rules and regs to work in a real life. People liked Pharisees. They didn't think of them as legalistic. They thought of them as trying to help them live according to this legalistic way that the scholars laid out for us. The religious experts. That's where it was coming from. And so what he does to them is, you've insulted us too. Yep. <laughs> what sorrow hates you? You crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. You never lift a finger to ease the burden. Look at where he's accenting. Look at how he's saying this contrast what the religious scholars were doing with this is what it takes with God rule, 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 rule contrast that with this 
God coming to you because you can't. God taking the consequences of what you did upon himself. You see it? That's not rules. That's somebody who lifted a finger. No, he didn't lift a finger. He lifted his whole body up onto a cross. You know how much he loved you. That he understood the burden that you were under, the, the pain, the bondage. He put himself on the cross to take the consequences of your choices. That's somebody who didn't just lift a finger. That's somebody who gave his entire life for you. Right? That's God. This other thing is death. Jesus is life. And as the Bible, only the Bible can do it by dying. Jesus brings us life. Christianity is so beautiful. It is poetic in ways that surpass the most that poetry can do. Because it's not just words. It's God himself living it. What sorrow awaits you, experts, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You see what the key to knowledge is? The key to knowledge is that God loves you. That he's trying to help you. That he wants you to be with him. That he's willing to make the distance. You don't have to get to him. You can't. He'll come to you. That's the key. Let's boil that down. Love. God loves you. He's not some angry, eye-shaded, wrapping knuckle God. He's the one who understands in his own heart with empathy what you're going through. Came and lived it himself to show you that he got it. That's the key to get you in. Right? This is what he's saying to these guys. And then, and then as he's leaving, for such a, I mean, what a terrible message, right? I guess it is to them, but as Jesus was leaving, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees became hostile to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him. You'll notice that I didn't go through the one that he talked about where, you know, you, you, know, you killed the prophet, your ancestors killed the prophets, and then you built monuments for them. I wanted, I wanted to put it right here, and here's what I want to say about that. Watch what he's saying there. What he's saying is, is look, he's saying, you're, when I sent somebody to your ancestors, what did they do with them? They rejected them as being from God because they didn't fit your category of what they were supposed to be. And so you killed them or persecuted them. And later on, you religious experts figured out that now that really was from God. And so you built monuments to them. But, now, but right now, God is sending you not just a prophet, but himself. Jesus Christ is standing. God himself is standing right in front of you. And what are you going to do with him? going to kill him too. You see it? And that's why the ball comes upon these. Particularly because how much more clear could he have made it? What if one of them had just stopped and said, is he right? <laughs> is this true? What am I supposed to do about that? What if it isn't a manual filled with a thousand rules and if you get one wrong 
the crane topples and kills people. What if that isn't what Christianity is about? And if that's not what Christianity is about, then that's not what moving in Christianity is about. Getting everything just perfect. What the Bible teaches us as a manual is not rules and regs. It teaches God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. And that is exceedingly great news. Right? So what if, again, now, now Jesus was talking about religion and salvation and relationship with God and everything else. Again, we're, we're now back in the shoes of the disciples. And what we're doing is, is we've been we've been sent out. We've done some praying. We've seen some, and we've seen some things happen. And there's a religious thing going on. We were fishermen before, fish fishing for fish. But now we're moving to fishing for people. And there is this whole complex on this other ditch that is waiting to consume us in a hypocrisy, in a wrong spiritedness, in a death. And what he's trying to do to his disciples as they get this is he's trying to say this. Keep it simple, stupid. Justice and love of God. What does the Lord require of you? To do right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's it. That means that everything we do ought to be in that spirit, right? Because if suddenly it gets to healing, it, well, it's all about love and mercy over here, but boy, when it gets to healing, it gets real rules-based. Does that sound right? Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. No, see, Jesus, I prayed for three and a half hours first. I want you guys disciples to know. I want you to know how this guy got healed. I prayed, I prayed. See, it was among me. I did it. I prayed for three and a half hours. I studied for four and a half years. I, 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 I did what it took for that person to get healed. Even Jesus, the Bible says, emptied himself of what he was to be God, meaning emptied himself of his godly attributes. Jesus could have healed. But he loved that, and he allowed the Holy Spirit to anoint him, just like he does all of us, that the Holy Spirit might move through him to do those same works to show us how we can do that. You see it? And the key to it is not how much time you pray and how holy you are. I'm not saying prayer and holiness are bad things. Dude, nobody's getting that, right? I'm not saying forget about prayer and holiness. doesn't matter. Do you understand the wickedness of your own soul and how much prayer is good for it? And how much actually resisting the devil so that he will flee? Do we get that? So that I don't have to get stuck on milk, but I can go to meat? Which is actually, it's always the simplest things that are the most profound, isn't it? What if, what if doing all the things that Jesus did and more, what if it was really as simple as truly loving those you're with like this? I live in a building. And there's a guy that works in the building. 
and I probably shouldn't say his name, but he wouldn't mind, but I won't anyway. But uh, I think it's MS, but he has something, it seems like it's not MS, but it's something to where he has a problem with walking. About a month ago, it's, it's getting worse. About a month ago, he was walking down the street and missed a step and fell, and it looked like he'd been in a car wreck on the whole side of his face that planted into the cement. And that was hard. It was hard to see that. And that was a month ago. And just yesterday, I've been gone, and I came back, and I was picking up packages, and and I went down, and, and I like him. He likes me, and we were talking, and, and he went. We were standing right next to each other, standing right here, and he was standing right here. And he went to reach and do something, but again, his leg didn't make the reach with him. And he kind of toppled. I didn't have to hold him up, but it was an inch from me having to catch him from falling again. I don't want to live the feckless Christianity that doesn't let me be an answer in the middle of his need. I, I'm sick of it. I cannot take it. This watered-down, milk-toasted nonsense of Christianity. Jesus helped me. My heart is to help him. If my heart is to do miracles because that makes me something great or makes me something more, then pox on me, right? Moved with compassion, Splunk Nitsomai, his gut turned. This is not what God intended. He didn't intend this man to walk and plant his face in the, in the pavement like that. He didn't intend him to be debilitated like that. This is not what God intended. Where is the holy righteousness, the heart of God that cries out and says to the cross, I want to take this? You see it? What do I have to do in order to become somebody that God can move through in order to do that? It turns out it's a bunch of rules or regs or a manual or processes or prayer or holiness. It turns out it's a heart. It's a heart that says, God, my heart breaks for him. And Lord, in Jesus' name, right now, this congregation has one praise for his healing. Not out of pity, but just out of compassion. Spark needs am I. Our hearts moved to say this is a man in need who surely wants free of this. And God, you have given us the ability to be to be an instrument of yours to bring that healing and it has not come and we say to you in Jesus' name, here are we, send us. We don't want any more feckless Christianity having a form of godliness but denying the truth, the fullness, and the power thereof. Instead, in Jesus' holy and precious name, take us and make us your instruments of good news of overcoming love, of the truth of who you are in fullness.
where we are compromised and in the way we don't understand and we don't try and fix strength, we come to you and we say, burn us up and clean us out. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, I ask you, heal this man. Heal this man. Heal him and be healed, we say in the authority you've given us. And be healed. In Jesus' name. That's the simplest thing that there ever was. E equals MC squared explains the whole universe. Turns out matter is not, it's energy. Let there be light. Light, energy turned into substance. Einstein discovered it and he said, one of the ways that I know that that's truth is because it's so simple and so What if just really letting ourselves love people, what if really becoming infected with the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for people, what if that simple little truth brings this? Just so that you know, this is the largest visible, tangible thing that's ever happened with E equals MC squared. That is E equals MC squared working out in the real world. It's the largest one we ever filmed. Did, did it already shake the camera? By the way, look at that right there. That reminds me of God on the Mount. On, remember? On Sinai? Where it was filled with smoke and fire and people were afraid. If love is like that. What if love just isn't this mamby-pamby little thing of just loving somebody? What if it's power? And I don't mean to exercise power because we like power because we're corrupted by power. I mean, what if love? What if you keep at love? What if you major in love? What if you get your masters and your docking else in love to the point that God can do that through you? Yeah? Now, I told you that there was a Thanksgiving moment to this, and I'm just going to do it in two seconds. Many of you are headed home or to families and, to, and you're headed to some place where you're going to be with people that aren't necessarily all Christians. And I just want you to grab a hold of something here. We're just right at the end, but watch this. We've already talked about this in another time. You see that? You see the second largest category right there? That's called unaffiliated. That's also called now the nuns. And what that means is people that claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. But here's what's interesting about that stat right now, because this is just now coming out in the research. The people who are nuns, which is the second largest single entity now in the country, the people who are nuns, they're not just, they used to be, this is an article that just came out, they used to be November 8, 2015, see that? The nuns used to be, if you believe in God, that was fine by you, and there wasn't any antipathy about it. There wasn't any, um, you see what I mean, conflict in that. But here's what's happening now. People that have made decisions to become nuns have made decisions, I don't mean N-U-N, I mean to become no religious affiliation, are becoming increasingly hostile to those who have one. That's what the research is showing. So I've been talking to you for a year about how I think things slip down a notch 
and that the consequences and the, the actions that we take will have different results, and you're going to be sitting at a Thanksgiving table, and you're going to be expecting certain people to be certain ways as you have been for a long time. I want to suggest to you that they're actually not going to be the same as they were. It's very possible they're going to be worse. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to fight fire with fire? Those who live by the sword get to die by it. Or are you going to love them? Are you going to know that there but for the grace of God go you? Are you going to know that because God saved you, you understand things differently, and until he does them, they won't? Are you going to return a f for offense? Are you going to return a reaction that is unexpected? One that is genuine love. Not you're lesser than me. Not I'm better than you. But is what you're going to return a heart? Explosive, life-altering heart. Reach down into your trays in front of you, and they're probably on the ground too, unfortunately. You see this? Truly love those you are, you are with like God does. And you see some spaces out here. Could we get Kevin? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down some names over there. I want you to take this card, and we, I made it business size. We made it business size, Liz did. Made it business size so that you can stick it in your wallet. And now here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to write down a few names of people that you're going to see that as the Holy Spirit would quicken you, that you want to be in a place of love about. And then I want you to put it, you know, whatever credit card you use all the time, put it in front of the credit card so you have to go behind this to get your credit card out to pay for stuff. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm really quite serious. Put it there so that every time you go to pull out your credit card to pay gas, to get home, whatever, you know, you see these people that you're praying for. These people that you're asking God to equip you with an outstanding love for. What do you think? Go ahead, Kevin. Give us a, a little background music. Just write this down, and then we're going to take communion and go home. But, okay, just, just take a minute and write these things down. Can I get a card, too? Thanks.
stand in front of you and grab these cups, would you? Lord, we have in mind right now, uh, honestly, I just started writing down all the people who are going to be at the table. People I know are going to be there. Because each one of them, I felt like I can pray for them. I can ask God to equip me. I can ask God to give me a love for them that's going to make a difference. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we recognize that our lack of love, our own rights, our own uh, sense of things, our own religiousness, all the things that we've done have broken this world. We have not modeled you, Jesus. We have not communicated you people look at us, they don't see you. Not we recognize that that means that we have broken the world. We've been a part of it breaking. And so with that, we take our finger and we stick it down in that cup and we just break it to recognize our participation in the brokenness that is this world. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup and we lift it to Christ on the cross knowing that on that cross, Jesus, by your stripes, we were healed. We were made whole. That you took it. That you do it. And so in Jesus' name, with the being in our hearts, for what you have done for us, and with a prayer in our hearts, that you should do that for all those that we're gathered with this Thanksgiving. We take this cup for healing. Ourselves and them. Teach us how to love them, Lord. Take this cup together. And now in the spectacular name that is Jesus, in the spectacular love that is Jesus, with the blood that was spilled, we might live the life that you have for us. We take this cup together too saying, God, let my life look more and more and more like yours by your strong right arm. In Jesus' name.